you, Hymn Team, for singing those songs. Those are some of my favorites, so thank you. <laughs> How was everyone's week? Everyone survived the toilet paper crisis? We're used to living in a world of plenty, and it's kind of been an, an interesting social observation this week, um, seeing the panic that everyone is going through. And I think, you know, because we're so used to living in abundance, where you have so many different brands of toilet paper, all of a sudden seeing a few empty shelves puts everyone in a spin. It's so interesting. This is my local uh, Kohl's. Um, I think it was on Tuesday or Wednesday. And there was still a little bit of toilet paper. Um, you can't really tell, but the recycled toilet paper was still there. Um, all the other ones had been, had been uh, taken. But I thought to myself, surely when they restock, everyone will just calm down. Boy, was I wrong. Yesterday, I went to Costco to buy some food for tonight. And I, I thought I was going to get there a little bit early so that I could just go in and get out. Well... There was a crowd of people waiting, and when the roller doors went up, people nearly stampeded each other to go get toilet paper. The queue to get the toilet paper went throughout. If you've ever been to a Costco, it's a ginormous warehouse. The queue went the length of the whole building, and the employee um, you know, at Costco was yelling out, one per membership, rationing out toilet paper. Do you realize how crazy that is? Um, and people were, I think, everyone, you know, was walking out with the big, you know, 48-pack of toilet paper, the Kirkland brand, the purple brand that Costco has. It was quite an interesting phenomenon to observe. Where is this panic buying coming from? I think that, one, there was fear that there wouldn't be enough toilet paper, even though toilet paper gets made in Australia. There was fear that the plastic wrapping, you know, is from China and there might be a shortage. And anyway, somehow the fear started by someone and then the media reported it and then everyone heard there might not be toilet paper. And then there was fear of missing out. Well, if they've got toilet paper, maybe I should go buy some toilet paper. And then there's the fear that because of the panic buying, when I actually need toilet paper, I might not have any, right? So these various fears are driving everyone to go buy more toilet paper, leading to more panic buying. And as I was uh, observing on that this week, I just thought to myself, wow, how quickly we go from a little bit of anxiety, you know, to full-out panic to full out what I consider um, a little bit insanity. Here's what actual scarcity looks like. More than 670 million people, or 8.6% of the world population, live in extreme poverty. And what I mean by that is that they don't have basic needs like health, education, access to water and sanitation. They live on less than $1.90 a day. Forget toilet paper. They don't even have sanitation. Right? They don't have water. This is what actual scarcity looks like. 55% of the world population have no access to social protection, such as health care, disability, family, retirement benefits, etc. 55% of the world. We are so extremely blessed to live in Australia. And for many of us, we don't even realize how truly wealthy we are. According to the 2019 Global Wealth Report, 
if your net worth, okay, and net worth is all your assets. So think about the money you've got in the bank, your super, right? Plus everything you own, furniture, cars, um, electronics, right? You add all of your assets up, you subtract any debt you might have, and that's your net worth. If your net worth, and this is in US dollars, is at least $10,000, you are richer than more than half of the world. Okay? $10,000. And if your net worth is more than $100,000, so again, your properties, your cars, your bank, uh, your super, add that all up, and if it's more than 100000 US, you are in the top 10% of the world. Just, I just want you to think about that. And if you're somewhere between, your net worth is somewhere between 10000 and 100000 that means you're somewhere between the 60, 55 to 10% of the world. Roy and I, as I was doing this research, we calculated, you know, what's our net worth? We, we were like, how much do you have? You know, what's your car worth? And we added it all up. And we are more towards the 55%. But that's okay. The truth is, we are richer than most of the world. We are richer than most of the world. We forget how much we actually have. Because so many of the time, we feel like it's not enough. We have a scarcity mindset when we're actually quite wealthy. The term scarcity mindset was coined um, by Stephen Covey's famous book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And um, in this book, he talks about how people with a scarcity mindset have a very difficult time sharing recognition and credit power or profit because they have this belief that there's only so much to go around. Right? There's only so much love to share. There's only so much time. There's only so much power. There's only so many seats at the table. So if someone else gets it, then it's a feeling of loss. That if someone else succeeds, that means I've, lo- I've failed. So even though they may verbally express happiness for other people's success, inwardly they are eating their hearts out with jealousy and feeling like they have lost something in someone else's game. Their sense of worth comes from being compared and someone else's success to some degree means their failure. They feel like there's only so many opportunities or rewards or positions, so if someone else gets it, then it feels like there's one less available for you. A professor of, um, of economics at Harvard University researched the scarcity mindset and discover that when you really want something, you start to focus on it obsessively. So when you're hungry, right? The only thing you can think about is food, right? Or if you're desperately poor, you're constantly worrying about how to make ends meet. Scarcity produces a kind of tunnel vision, and it explains why when we're in a hole, we often lose sight of long-term priorities and we dig ourselves even deeper. The scarcity mindset of feeling like you don't have enough or that you're not enough is driven by fear and insecurity. The abundance mindset, on the other hand, flows out of a deeper inner sense of personal worth and security. Let me just, I just realized that all my slides have been set to. I have to click each one. (laughs) I didn't mean for that to happen. So the abundance mindset flows out of this 
are opposite. So scarcity mindset is one from fear and insecurity where you feel like someone else's success means uh, a bit of loss for you and and, um, it's hard to share credit, it's hard to share time. But the abundance mindset, on the other hand, comes from a deep sense of personal worth and security. It's a paradigm that there's plenty out there for, for everyone and enough to spare. It results in the sharing of prestige, of recognition, of profit, and of decision-making. And it opens possibilities, options, alternatives, and creativity. I want to look at a few stories in the Bible. And let's examine together what kind of mindset we see exhibited. Scarcity or abundance? And the first story I want to look at is in um, 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 7 to 16. And you've got your white Bibles in front of you. It's page. First Kings 17. 293. 293. First Kings chapter 17, verses 7 to 16. Now I have it on the slides as well, but you can follow along. On the slides, I've tried to um, bold out a few key words I want you to focus on. So the story begins, the Lord said to Elijah, and by the way, this is during a time when there was a three and a half year of famine. There's no rain, there's a drought, okay, everyone is is feeling it. And Elijah was a messenger of God, and God says to Elijah, go and live in the village of Zarephath, near the city of Sidon. I have instructed a widow there to feed you. So he went to Zarephath, and as he arrived at the gates of the village, he saw a widow gathering sticks, and he asked her, would you please bring me a little water in a cup? And as she was going to get it, he called to her, bring me a bite of bread too. Let's just pause for a moment. This is a single mother living around 860 BC. During this con- cultural context, widows are at the very bottom of the hierarchy. So, so economically, um, they're, they're at the very bottom. They have the least amount of, of influence and wealth. On top of that, there's a severe drought in the land. And so here comes Elijah asking this widow, who is the poorest of the poor, even though she has a household, so perhaps she was a little bit better off than some widows. But this strange man, a foreigner, she's from Zarephath, he's from Israel, comes and asks her for water. And she doesn't hesitate. She goes to get it for him. It's quite an amazing response of this widow. But as she's going to get this water, right, she's responding, she's giving, she's being hospitable. He says, bring me a bite of bread too. Ah, what a challenge. What a test of faith. And if you think about it, if you were in that woman's shoes, what would you have done? Here's how she responds. She said, I swear by the Lord your God that I don't have a single piece of bread in the house. But she's honest. She says, I have only a handful of flour left in the jar and a little cooking oil in the bottom of the jug. I was just gathering a few sticks to cook this last meal and then my son and I will die. So she's letting him know, this is all I've got left. I just have, I don't have any made bread and I just have a few ingredients and I'm about to make my last little bit to have my last meal with my son. Elijah says to her, don't be afraid. Go ahead and do just what you've said, but make a little bread for me first. Then use what's left to prepare a meal for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. There will always be flour and olive oil left in your containers until the time when the Lord sends rain and the crops grow again. 
I remember when I read this story for the first time uh, when I was younger, and I thought to myself, how selfish of Elijah, right? To ask this poor woman to make his bread first. <laughs> I thought to myself, doesn't he understand that she only has a little bit left? You know, first, give her the abundance, and then she can make some, and they can all share, right? Why does he ask her for this bread first? But as I was studying this text um, a bit further this week, I was looking at the original language um, of the Hebrew, and I realized something. That when he says, go make me a little bread, let's see if I can use my fancy, there we go. Um, This Hebrew word for a little, it's a word that means the tiniest, tiniest amount insignificant is is another way to translate it. So he's saying to her, yeah, you're going to have enough for yourself and your son. Just give me the tiniest little bit first. And you will have enough for yourself and your son. And not only that, but God is going to provide so that you have enough every day until the rain comes back. And as I was studying this, I thought, wow, that's actually quite an interesting paradigm shift for me as I look at this text. Because when I think about how God works in the Bible and what God wants from us, for example, with tithing, right? He doesn't say, give me 90%. He says, just give me 10 out of 100. You get to keep the 90. Just give me the 10, but give it to me, set it aside. And if you look at what, what Jesus says, he, he says to the crowds, he says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added to you, right? All these other things that you desire in your life will be given to you. And so I just, as I studied this, I thought, wow, God is so consistent over and over again. God is saying, yeah, give me, but you get to have as well. Right? So, so often we think that by giving God, it's, we have to give everything and we're not going to get anything. And it, you know, we struggle with that. But God is saying, give me the 10%. Give me the tiniest morsel of bread. Give me that Sabbath day out of the week. Give me that portion. You get to have the rest. Right? You get all the rest and it's going to be enough for you and your family. And God is going to provide so that you have so much more than you even started with. It's a test of faith for this woman. Is she going to believe that God is actually going to provide and that there is actually enough? She has to change her mindset from one of the scarcity of, this is all I've got left. I've just got you know, a little oil on the bottom of the barrel that I have to you know, wait a long time for it to drip out. I've only got a little bit of flour that I have to scrape out. And to change her mentality from one of scarcity, right? this is all I've got to, oh, I actually I have more, t- I actually have that enough to give and then the rest for me to change that mindset to this is all mine to I can give you this and I still have enough for myself and I believe God is going to give me more this widow despite the scarcity in her life in her circumstance adopts that abundance mentality and she goes You know, in this culture, 
And in this context of this story, give us this day our daily bread takes on a new meaning. For us who live in abundance most of the time, we don't realize the miracle of having our daily bread, the miracle of having the things that we take for granted. What would be our response if someone asked us for the last bit of time left at the end of the day, the last bit of energy or resource we had? What would be our response? Would we too believe that God is going to provide Or we say, no, this is mine. I don't have enough to give. There's not enough for God. This woman goes and does what Elijah said. So she makes a little bit for him. And there's enough for herself and her son. And there's enough the day after that. And the day after that. And the day after that. Again, when you look at the original Hebrew, when it says she did, as Elijah said, and she and Elijah and her family continued to eat, the original Hebrew, uh, the verb tense, actually another way to translate it, a more accurate way, way would be to say, and she kept on doing what Elijah said. And she and Elijah and her family continued to eat, kept on eating. Okay? The verb implies every day she had to have that decision of faith. Every day, there's only a little bit of flour, a little bit of oil left. And every day, she has to decide, I'm going to make food for Elijah, and there's still going to be enough for my family. I'm going to make food for us, and there's still going to be enough for tomorrow. God didn't just multiply there and then. Every day, he gave that miracle. As every day, she stepped out in faith and did what God asked her to do. Quite an amazing woman of faith. What would be our response Do we need a storehouse, a warehouse of evidence before we are willing to obey and step on in faith? Sometimes it's those with the least who are most generous and those with the most who have the most scarcity mentalities. Here's another story, 1 Samuel chapter 25. David was a young shepherd boy who had been told by God that he was going to become king. So the current king didn't like that very much, and he persecuted David and tried to kill him, and so David runs away and is in exile for a long time, for years. And while he's in exile, um, other people who have been exiled as well join him. Now he's got this big group of people of hundreds of, of families and, and, and uh, soldiers. And while he's in the wilderness of Man, he helps to take care of the sheep and the shepherds that are in that region. And it turns out that the sheep and the shepherds belonged to a wealthy man who owned property near the town of Carmel. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, not to mention all the other things he owns. And it was sheep shearing time. This man's name was Nabal, and his wife Abigail was a sensible and beautiful woman. But Nabal, a descendant of Caleb, was crude and mean in all his dealings. So David and his men had protected his sheep and his shepherds so that it says, the Bible says that he had not lost a single sheep, which is pretty incredible when you have 3,000, right? Because there could be wolves, there would be, you know, thieves, there, there could be sickness. But David and his men protected the shepherds and the sheep so that not a single one was lost during the whole time that, the, um, that they were there. So when the the harvest time comes, it was customary that the landowner, the wealthy landowner, when it's sheep shearing time, would invite the whole community to his home. They would have a big feast, and that was a time to show hospitality. 
And in fact, in the Old Testament, God told them specifically, when you are having a harvest time, invite the foreigners, invite the poor, invite the widows, right? Let them feast too and share in your bounty. So David thinks, well, I've, I've helped him and it's feast time. So he sends a messenger to say, can we, can we have a little bit of food? Can you share uh, your bounty with us? And look at Nabal's response. Who is this fellow David? Nabal sneered to the young men. Who does this son of Jesse think he is? There are lots of servants these days who run away from their masters. Should I take my bread and my water and my meat that I've slaughtered for my shears and give it to a band of outlaws who come from who knows where? Look at Nabal's language, right? This is the scarcity mindset. Even though he's super wealthy, his mindset is one of scarcity. And he, he uses words like, I, my, right? Look at how many times the word my comes up in that one verse 11. He says, my bread, my water, my meat, my shearers, right? Why should I share mine, mine, mine? When this message comes back to David, he is furious. He marches with 400 men to come and kill Nabal and all the men in his community. Meanwhile, one of Nabal's servants quickly goes and tells Abigail, his wife, Nabal's wife, what has happened. And I love how what Abigail does next. She wasted no time. She quickly gathered 200 loaves of bread, two wineskins full of wine, five sheep that have been slaughtered, nearly a bushel of roasted grain, 100 clusters of raisins, and 200 fig cakes. She packed them on a donkey and said to her servant, go on ahead, I will follow you shortly. But she didn't tell her husband, Nabal, what she was doing. This is how wealthy Nabal was, that hundreds of items are missing, but he doesn't even notice. And in fact, later on, he says that he was feasting, he was drunk, you know, he was happy and merry. He doesn't even know that it, his wife is not there and that all these provisions have gone because he had so much of abundance. Abigail takes, uh, takes this and, and I want you to think about, well, okay, so Nabal has a scarcity mindset, but he's not the only one. Look at David's attitude. This is David now. The Bible tells us he's thinking a lot of good it did to help this fellow, right? David is so angry. We protected his flocks in the wilderness and nothing he owned was lost or stolen, but he has repaid me evil for good. May God strike me and kill me if every one of his men of his household is still alive tomorrow morning. So on the one hand, you have Nabal who is insulting and inhospitable and has a scarcity mindset, even though he's quite wealthy. On the other hand, you have got David who is super angry because he's like, I did good, and he's repaying me with evil. I don't know if you've ever been there, where you did something kind for someone, you did something good. But you kind of expected a little bit of return of good for what you have done. And instead, when you actually get kicked in the face and you actually get something evil in, in response, you regret having done any good at all. And now you wish evil upon the person that you actually did kindness to before. How quickly our mindset changes from one of, oh, yeah, I'll help you. And then as soon as they don't give us the right amount of gratitude or they do something that hurts us, we're like, how dare they? They did not deserve any of my kindness. And now I wish them, you know, all kinds of, you know, curses. And it's amazing how it reveals to us that even in the beginning that our mindset was not, our motivation was not in the right place. Not only is Nabal in that scarcity mindset, but so is David. 
because David actually has a lot to give, right? He could have just helped without expecting anything in return, but there was a part of him that was counting on that feast. Right? His reputation is, is, is at stake here. His pride has been ruffled up. How dare he insult me, right? The scarcity mindset comes from fear and insecurity. It's so easy to go there. It's so easy to close up our hearts and say, mine, my time, my money, my reputation, my expectations of the human motivations of wanting approval, wanting quid pro quo, right? There's so much of our hearts and our minds that are in a scarcity mindset. But Abigail, thanks to Abigail, the course of these two men's lives change. When she gets to where David is, she quickly gets off her donkey, she bows low, and she presents herself before him, and she says, I accept all blame in this matter, my Lord. Please listen to what I have to say. I know Nabal is a wicked and ill-tempered man. Please don't pay any attention to him. He's a fool, just as his name suggests, but I never even saw the young man you sent. First of all, she says, you know what? It's all my fault. It's not, but she's willing to take the blame and responsibility. And then she says, my, my Lord, as surely as the Lord lives and you yourself live, since the Lord has kept you from murdering and taking vengeance into your own hands, let all your enemies and those who try to harm you be as cursed as Nabal is. And here's a present that I, your servant, have brought to you and your young men. She is so clever, right? She says, oh, thank God that you have changed your mind. Instead of taking vengeance in your own hands, you've decided to let God take care of it. Notice David hasn't made that decision yet, but she's just like, oh, you're so wise. Well done, right? She's saying, what a wonderful thing it is that, that you have actually uh, not made this mistake. I can almost imagine David's face, one of like, why is that? Oh, right, right? Listen to what she continues to say. Please forgive me if I've offended you in any way. So you can tell that David is having a battle in his mind and she can tell. So she's saying, hey, I'm sorry. I'm sorry this is hard to hear. The Lord will surely reward you with the lasting dynasty for you are fighting the Lord's battles and you have not done wrong throughout your entire life. Even when you are chased by those who seek to kill you, your life is safe in the care of the Lord your God, secure in his treasure pouch. But the lives of her enemies will disappear like stones shot from a sling. So she gently reminds David, hey, remember, David, you haven't done anything wrong yet, yet. Don't mess it up now. Hey, remember, David, God is the one who's in control. You are in his safe hands. Remember, David, you fight the Lord's battles, not your own. So she just gently kind of reminds him of this. And then she says this, she says, when the Lord has done all he promised and has made you leader of Israel. So she kind of gently reminds him, reminds him remember, you're going to be, you're going to be the king. You, you have to, you have to keep to your morals here. She's reminding him gently, he's going to make you the leader of Israel. Don't let this be a blemish on your record. Then your conscience won't have to bear the staggering burden of needless bloodshed and vengeance. And when the Lord has done these great things for you, please remember me, your servant. So she just reminds him, hey, remember, what you're doing now is wrong, and you're going to regret it. Because your conscience is going to come back. You're angry right now. You're in the heat of the moment right now. But 
later on you're gonna realize I did the wrong thing and you cannot undo what you're about to do. David thanks her. He's like, you're right. I was about to do a really, really bad thing. I was acting from a fear, from a place of insecurity, right? His pride is ruffled, right? He's, he's, he was acting from um, a scarcity mindset of, hey, I gave you my time and my protection. My man and I, we worked hard for you. And he, he, he thought by giving, he had lost. Instead of, hey, we helped and we were happy to help and I'm going to be the king of Israel, and that is actually my job to protect my people anyway. And this is actually me just you know, practicing my role. Later on, the Bible goes on to say that Nabal has a stroke. He ends up dying. And when David hears that Nabal um, has died and that Abigail's a widow, he, asks, he proposes to her, and she accepts, and she becomes, later on, the queen of Israel. A third woman who had an abundance mindset, by the way, the reason why I've chosen these three women is because it's International Women's Day tomorrow and I wanted to highlight these three amazing women that are found in the Bible. Mark chapter 14. We now fast forward to 31 AD. And this is in the first century when Jesus had come to earth to show, to shatter the scarcity mindset that we all have. And so he comes as the poorest baby, so poor that he's born in a stable. And he wants to show it's not about the circumstances. You can still have this abundant mindset. And so Mark chapter 14, it's two days before Passover and the festival of unleavened bread. You'll notice a theme of bread throughout the Bible. It's very interesting. The leading priests and the teachers of the religious law were still looking for an opportunity to capture Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the Passover celebration. They agreed or the people may riot. And we know the power of people in panic. Meanwhile, Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon, a man who had previously had leprosy. While he was eating, a woman came in with a beautiful alabaster jar of expensive perfume made from essence of nard. She broke open the jar and poured the perfume over his head. Some of those at the table were indignant. Why waste such expensive perfume, they asked. It could have been sold for a year's wages and the money given to the poor. So they scolded her harshly. But Jesus replied, leave her alone. Why criticize her for doing such a good thing to me? You will always have the poor among you, and you can help them whenever you want to, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could and has anointed my body for burial ahead of time. I tell you the truth, wherever the good news is preached throughout the world, this woman's deed will be remembered and discussed. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve disciples, went to the leading priests to arrange to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted when they heard why he had come, and they promised to give him money. So he began looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus. What a stark contrast between this woman and between Judas. Judas ends up betraying Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Here is this woman okay, who in the original text it says 300 denarius. So 10 times the amount that Judas gets for betraying Jesus, she pours out in one moment of devotion. One moment 
of extravagant worship. The scent of this devotion and generosity was unmistakable. <clears throat> and instead of bringing delight, the men at the table are angry. Those at the table, those with the privilege, those who have much, right? For example, one of those people was Simon. Simon was a rich leader. He was one of the political leaders of Israel, but he had leprosy and Jesus had healed him. Where is Simon's gratitude? Where is Simon's gift? Yes, Simon hosted Jesus as a thank you for this dinner, but it was customary in those times that when you invite someone for dinner, your servant is, is ready at the door to wash your hands and your feet, to, perf- to anoint your head with oil. There was this whole process that they did to welcome you into the home. But you see, Simon, even though he had been cured of leprosy, he wasn't really grateful enough. In other words, he knew that Jesus was not liked by the other leaders. He knew that by inviting Jesus into his home, he might get in trouble or that others might judge him. And so he reluctantly invites Jesus as a way to say, thank you for saving my life. But he neglects to do those things that he's supposed to do. And his heart is closed up. And in Luke chapter 7, Jesus is talking to Simon. He knows that, that Simon is judging and criticizing this woman And he says, look at this woman kneeling here. When I entered your home, you didn't offer me water to wash the dust from my feet, but she has washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss, but from the time I first came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. I tell you her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven. So she has shown me much love. But a person who has forgiven little shows only little love. Then Jesus said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. The men at the table said amongst themselves, who is this man that he goes around forgiving sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. The men at the table go from judging her to judging Jesus. Those with scarcity mentalities cannot see, experience, or understand grace. Because they don't really realize how much they've been forgiven. They don't really realize how much they've been blessed. They think they deserve everything they have and more. But this woman, who does not have a seat at the table, she does not think about what she doesn't have. But instead, she has an abundant mindset of gratitude, devotion, worship, grace. She gets grace she understands it and accepts it and she gives it and she leaves in peace meanwhile judas leaves to betray jesus and not only that i love how jesus stands up for her when the men at the table are criticizing her and he says what she has done will be told forever wherever this goodness is shared She will be discussed. She will be talked about. She'll be lifted up. And that's true. We're doing it right now. From an abundant heart, she gave abundantly. And of course, so did another. John chapter 13, verses 1 to 4. Before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and return to his father. He had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth, and now he loved them to the very end. It was time for supper, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, 
to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything and that he had come from God and would return to God. So he got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, and poured water into a basin. Then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that he had around him. You see, from the abundance of love and security that Jesus had of knowing where he came from, Right? He knew that he came from the Father. He knew that he had all authority. And from that place of security and from that place of abundant love, the king of the universe gets down to serve. And that wasn't enough. So then the king of the universe gets on the cross and dies the worst criminal's death in the Roman Empire. A death by crucifixion so that you and I can be saved from our scarcity mindset of small thinking, small loving, small giving, and then to be able to live life abundantly. The first century missionary Paul described this amazing outpouring of Jesus in this way. He says, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, right? If you have any little bit of any one of these things, then make my joy complete by being like-minded having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, right? That's the scarcity mindset, selfishness and vain conceit, pride. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationship with each other, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, right? abundant, right? He had everything, power, privilege, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So how do we have this mindset of Jesus? How do we have a mindset of humility and love and generosity and not be motivated by fear and anxiety and jealousy? Three practical points I want to leave with you. Remember the widow of Zarephath, that she trusted in God's word that there would be enough. She trusted in God's word and she obeyed it. Whether it was in hospitality, whether it was in generosity, whether it's in our time, our service, our finances, trust that God's word is going to come true. Remember Abigail, right? Let God be the judge. Let God be the judge. She had the courage and the insight and the wisdom to say, you know what? Let God be the judge. Let's not criticize each other. Let's not... um, you know, take vengeance on each other instead of the bitterness and the anger and the jealousy. Let that go and let God be the judge. That means instead of criticizing, we celebrate. We celebrate the success of others. We, we affirm and celebrate um, the, the achievements of others. And, and thirdly, remember the woman who anointed Jesus with that extravagant perfume. She knew that. She knew that she was forgiven much. And so out of this gratitude and love, she gave abundantly. Acknowledge how much God has given us, right? 
how he has forgiven us, how he calls us his children, how he's given us so much, right? He's given us community and opportunities and love. So express gratitude. There was a Forbes article about the abundant mindset. And it said that gratitude is the key way to practice abundant thinking. Because the study of hedonic adaptation shows that when we meet our expectations of more money, more time, more resources, we actually quickly return to the same level of happiness that we actually had before the gain. Okay, they've done this study. You think you'll be happier when you get this much more money. You think you'll be happier when you get that promotion. You think you'll be happier when you get into that relationship. And you have all these expectations, but the, the study shows once you've achieved it, you enjoy it for a little bit, and then your happiness level drops right back down to where you were before. It's never going to be enough. But instead, when you practice gratitude, studies have shown that your happiness level increases. Have you heard the song You Say by Lauren Daigle? It's quite a um, popular song. When it was first introduced, it spent seven, 65 weeks at number one on the, um, the Christian song list. Breaking really embrace that so that when those voices in our heads and the voices that are external as well tell us that we're not enough, that we can choose to believe in your truth, that we can choose to believe your voice, and that as a result, we can have that abundant mindset that is able to love generously, that is able to give generously of our time and our resources, our finances, of our, of our service, Father, to those around us. And Father, during this uh, time where so many people are in panic and anxiety about the virus and other things that are happening, help us to be a channel of peace and a channel of love and generosity. I pray in your son's name. Amen.